again to Church on Saturday, City Life. Uh, I hope all these opportunities that we have to give, they, they feel less like a demand and more like an opportunity. I know for me, Steph can attest what I'm terrible at is when she's like, give me a list of, of Christmas presents, and I never have a list. I just don't have that many needs to be like, give me this, this, and this. So I hope if that's you this year that, that you'd feel challenged to whether it's the kid life Again, it's citylifeva.com slash kidlifechristmas, or whether it's that missions offering we're doing on December 21st. There's so many ways to be generous this Christmas season when generosity is contagious and giving just feels like the thing to do. We get to bless people outside of our families and outside of this room and really all over the world once you start talking about the DR. So let's just pray about those opportunities. But uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad at like giving Steph ideas for Christmas. I'm, my mind's already, not to skip Christmas. I love Christmas, love Christmas trees, love nativity scenes. I'm already thinking about like next year, right? I, I, I know resolutions get joked a lot, but there's something healthy about resolutions when you realize change doesn't just happen. You actually have to make decisions and have resolve and be intentional. Change doesn't just happen when you wake up in the morning. So it's about to be new year, new me season. But on a whole other level because it's a new decade. There's probably going to be some other hashtag, but there's going to be a fresh wave of healthy resolutions. And a lot of people are going to be adding to their to-do list. They're going to be adding to their calendar. They're going to be adding things here, there, and everywhere. And I know sometimes why so many resolutions fail is because we're not actually making room for all those things we're adding. Sometimes you have to subtract to make room in the inn, right, to make room in the proverbial inn on your calendar and in the, in the things that you want to get done. Like Jesus understood this when he says you can't serve two masters. Yes, that's about God and money, but it's also just saying Lee, you can't do everything. Can't do everything well, can't serve everybody at the same time. Another wise person not named Jesus once said if you chase two rabbits at the same time, they'll both get away, right? You need focus and resolve, and sometimes you need to subtract. So at the start of next year in January, we'll be talking about things that God tells us in our lives through his commands and through the word that he tells us to subtract so that we can make room for more of him and all those resolutions he wants us to walk in. But coincidentally, tonight I want to add something. (laughs) After all that, I want to add something. Don't worry. It's not something you got to add to your calendar in a busy Christmas season. I'm not about to declare a church-wide fast when you're baking Christmas cookies. But what I I do want to add to your vocabulary tonight is a word. And Wayne didn't know what it was, so I felt good. I I was like, Wayne's going to know what this is. It's astronomy. Maybe you're like, yeah, I know astronomy. I was in the astronomy club in high school. That's astronomy, okay? (laughs) Astronomy is, it's not pulled from a Greek or Hebrew uh, dictionary as a pastor. It's not pulled from some random concordance. It's actually a a Russian word that was introduced by a, a Russian writer, Victor Shklovsky in the 1920s. It can also be referred and is also referred to as defamiliarizing or making strange again. The Russian itself means denumbing. So it's an artistic or literary idea that speaks to presenting a familiar subject in an unfamiliar way. Take something that we're familiar with that we're numb to and find a way to awaken curiosity again and make us reconsider the norms and values that maybe we haven't examined in quite some time. So how do they do this? Well, take for an example a book many of us had to read in high school. I don't know about you guys anymore. Animal Farm, right? Yes? Yes. Okay, they still read that, right? Because <laughs> at its core, it's a commentary on politics. We've got hundreds, thousands, millions of books on that, but it's through animals. So it takes something familiar but makes it 
unfamiliar. And in this way, whether it's with art or writing, astronomy, which I should be rolling my R, but I'm not going to tonight, so tough. Astronomy takes the process of perception and prolongs it. Sometimes it'll give a fresh perspective. Sometimes it simply deepens the one we already had, but it denumbs us. We can't be apathetic or not think about it. It forces us to consider something maybe we haven't considered in some time. So consider this. The whole reason I bring this up is the first Christmas was astronomy through and through. Because in books that are written and use this, often they will elevate the lowly, People of low social status will replace people of high social status. And Christmas, we should remember the discovery of Christmas, the announcement of Christmas, the people that ran to Jesus, those weren't parts of the religious elite. Like the angels who announced Christmas were doing it to blue-collar workers on the night shift. Shepherds who, unless they were cleansed, wouldn't have been able to just walk into the temple because by nature their very job was considered unclean. The wise men we put in our nativity scenes, they were Gentiles. Right? According to the Jewish tradition, they were outsiders. They wouldn't have been able to just stroll up in the inner courts of the temple either. We see in the Christmas story that outsiders are insiders. The lowly are important. Again, it's astronomy. If the original Christmas was astronomy, I bring it up again because modern Christmas needs it. We need defamiliarization. <laughs> we need a denumbing. Shklovsky also spoke of astronomy as counteracting the inexorable pull of routine. And challenging the chain of habitual association and automatic responses. Christmas sometimes is automatic responses. It's traditions, routines, rituals, and all of them can be beautiful and bring meaning. I love listening to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and Christmas hymns. I like putting up the Christmas tree. I love candlelight services. I love all these traditions. Done well, they can awaken awe and wonder and spark worship. But it can also, if we're not careful, rob our wonder and worship. If we're not careful, familiarity can actually breed apathy. What am I talking about? I know we got a lot of parents in here. Parents that are either parenting now or we're parenting. Did your kids, do your kids have a movie or episode that they want to watch again and again and again and again and again, like daily? Thank you. I was hoping somebody would say me too, because otherwise I'd feel very alone. <laughs> and it, what, what is it? Star Wars episode four. Good choice. The Mandalorian. <laughs> you want to watch it again and again, huh? Cars 2. Cars 2. Yes, Bart has told me Cars 2 was the jam. <laughs> Sally. Wally. Raj hasn't seen that yet. See, we've had Raj time flies for four years in March. It's crazy. So he's been through phases. He went through about a year and a half where all he wanted to watch was Moana. And he watched Moana again and again and again and again for about a year and a half. Then it, I think it got taken off of Netflix. And so then it was Lilo and Stitch for about a year, again and again and again. It's all, you, all he wants to watch. Now get this. His current obsession isn't a Disney movie. It's not a movie at all. It is Blue Planet 2, Episode 1. Don't try to put on another episode. He knows, he knows the, the music and the, and the first cut. If it's not that the, the going over the water, he knows immediately, oh, you're trying to play Coral Reef. No, I want Episode 1. Right? He is obsessed for some reason with episode one. And mind you, there is incredible footage in this episode. There's like, there's fish with, as big as my wingspan that jump out of the water, feet out of the water to eat birds. It's crazy. 
There's uh, stingrays where they're under, they're in like the deep water where there's bioluminescent algae, and when they swim into it, it just looks like fireworks. The, the footage is crazy. My buddy, my roommate from college, came through a couple months ago with his wife, and they're hanging out with me and Roz. I'm like, well, you're going to figure out what our nights are like. We're going to be watching this episode. His mom was blown, right? This footage, he's like, I didn't know animals, fish could do this, like that they were even this smart. About a month ago, we watched it with Raj's grandfather, and he was like, how did they even get this footage? Like, I had no idea that these animals could do this. But me, I've seen it about 147 times, right? I'm no longer in awe. Oh, I can recite some facts, right? <laughs> false killer whales. I didn't know false killer whales were a thing, but I can tell you they swim at 12 miles per hour to get to their prey, right? I can tell you that a walrus pup weighs 175 pounds, right? I got all this up here, and my David Attenborough British accent is on point. Right, Steph can attest. <laughs> now, I'm not going to do it while I preach. But, uh, but I, it, it turns on, and for Raj, he's, he, he freaks out every time, gets excited. For me, it's background noise. I get to practicing my accent or doing work on the computer because I've seen it hundreds of times. But what's funny is that as we talk about Blue Planet in Shklovsky's thesis, he compared the blindness of familiarity with people at the seashore who grow so accustomed to the murmur of the waves that they never even hear it. It just becomes background noise. And I share this because, again, for us, the Christmas story, it's like our Blue Planet 2 episode 1. We're about to be hit with another wave of Christmas, and for some of us, it's like the umpteenth time. But Christmas isn't just waves and wildlife, right? Christmas is, as it says in John 1, God, flesh and blood, taking on, or excuse me, God Almighty taking on flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood. But this whole Christmas story, again, we've heard it hundreds of times. We've seen it acted out in plays. We've, we've heard songs about it, seen movies about it. We can tell you the facts, how it ends, all the plot twists of the Christmas story. So my question for us tonight is if Christmas is our Blue Planet 2 episode 1, who are you? Are you Raj, who gets excited every single time? literally will sit on the couch and say, wow. It's one of like six words he can say. <laughs> are you wowed by Christmas anymore? Or are you me who is no longer really moved by what's amazing? Some of us need some Christmas astronomy, some holiday defamiliarization and denumbing so we can feel wonder and awe about all Christmas tells us. Because without wonder, our worship's gonna be empty. To put it in another way, our holiday, it needs more marvel. Now, I'm not talking about Marvel movies. We don't need a, an Avengers Christmas special. I'd watch it, but we probably don't need it. But uh, Marvel is more than the superior comic or a, a, a movie franchise. Marvel means, as a word, to be filled with wonder or astonishment. The word in the Greek that means to marvel or to stand amazed, it's used frequently in the Gospels because people are they're standing in marvel about Jesus. Some 32 times it says that crowds marvel at what he was doing. But twice in his ministry, and only twice, does it say that Jesus marveled at somebody or something else. So if it's only twice, I'm thinking, okay, what is it? Do I want to emulate this or not? So the first thing that makes God in the flesh marvel and stand in wonder, it's in Luke 7. It's the Roman centurion who, who wants healing for his servant but realizes Jesus has such authority. Jesus has such power. He just sends a servant and says, I know, Jesus, you don't even have to come. One, I'm not worthy of you coming to heal my servant. And two, I know you have so much authority and power, you can just speak it and it'll happen. And Jesus marvels at this. 
Jesus says, wow, right? It blows his mind that, of all things, a Roman officer, Roman centurion, Gentile, right, would have had this faith. So the Roman officer, to me, represents those who believe and act in faith when you don't think they would, right? A faith that you wouldn't expect. Like, when I think about that, I think about people in the church in Iran or persecuted countries where they give up security, They embrace the possibility of persecution and torture and death for the faith, but they have faith anyways, right? I think about people who have only known pain or illness, but they they never lose hope, right? People that have ridden the proverbial roller coaster in life with the highs and the lows and the highs and the lows again, but they never give up trust. Again, people you'd least expect to have faith. You wouldn't expect to find faith in their mess, but they have it regardless. That makes Jesus say, wow. But the second case is the town of Nazareth in Mark 6. So Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. And when he went there, they were amazed at first, but they didn't really honor him, didn't show him any respect because he'd grown up there. All their kids had gone to school with him, right? He, he, He had grown up there, built furniture there. It says in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6, it says the next Sabbath, Jesus began teaching in the synagogue there. And many who heard him, they were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Again, some translations say he marveled at their lack of belief. So Nazareth represents those who disbelieve and don't believe when there's every reason that they should And they should serve as a flashing warning to us, to those of us who are numbed by God's glory because of familiarity. Because Jesus has a pet peeve. It's indifference where there should be faith. It's numbness where there should be worship. It's apathy where there should be awe and amazement. All because of familiarity. And mind you, familiarity can be a beautiful thing. Like when you marry your spouse, one of the most beautiful things about Marriage is you're getting to know that person for the rest of your life, peeling back layer after layer for the rest of your life. And that can be such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But familiarity can be a trap because sometimes you get familiar and you tend to forget to honor. That's why part of the the wedding vows that we take is what? A vow to love and to cherish, which means to value, means to treasure We vow that because otherwise, if we don't cherish, we can slide into the trap of dishonoring and devaluing that Nazareth did because of familiarity. Nazareth, again, had known Jesus since he was a kid. The longer we're around something, the more danger there is that we can get over-familiar and slide into numbness or dishonor. You know, if I can get personal, this is one of my probably biggest fears in ministry. The question I ask myself repeatedly is, Have I become or am I becoming a professional Christian? Like a professional Christian is studied and scholarly but unchanged and unmoved personally by God's word. A professional Christian can lead churches like champions and still crumble. That's why people can lead and yet in their personal life end up unmoved by God. I don't want to be an expert 
on God that doesn't have encounters with God. I don't want to be drawn by God's word to a desk if I'm not drawn first to my knees. Every year this time around Christmas, I'm reminded that you can be an expert on God, a wise man or woman, and yet still not encounter him. You can be called to lead and end up unmoved. For all our familiarity with the wise men that we set up at these kind of nativity scenes, we sometimes forget that there's another group of wise men in the Christmas story. There's one group of experts and wise men in the Bible that managed to miss Jesus entirely. And it's in Matthew chapter 2. It's verses 3 through 6. So the Magi show up and King Herod is trying to figure out everything that's going on. And it says, King Herod called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. One translation actually says, wise men. And it says, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These men had the head knowledge, right? Herod asked them, hey, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? They know immediately, oh, Micah said Bethlehem. They didn't have to connect to Wi-Fi, Google it on their phone like I had to with the rod of Jesse. They already knew, right? They knew this. These same men, to become in their position, right, they had to memorize most of the Old Testament. Like, that's why they could just pull up a verse from Micah from their mental database and quote it. How many of you have verses from Micah, right, the minor prophet, memorized? But they had those memorized. But then the question is, if they knew of this prophesied Messiah, why weren't they grabbing their things and taking off to find him? Like, to me, that seems like a reasonable response with all the promises and prophecies that were in the balance. And again, it's worth noting. You can be familiar with Scripture. You can know your Bible and miss Jesus. Now, should we know what the Bible says? Oh, absolutely. Right? But the expert's familiarity and head knowledge, it didn't do him any favors. We do well to remember in our culture that it was experts that missed Jesus. Because, man, let me tell you, coming out of the age of enlightenment, we were given this desire to understand and be able to command all different things. And then social media, the social media age, it gives us this lie that maturity means everyone has an opinion, right, and everyone is an expert. So our impulse with God is to put him in boxes of knowable, doable, applicable, right, things that we understand. We want to, we want to put him in comfortable boxes. But here's the reality. We could go beyond what those religious leaders did. We could memorize the Bible from cover to cover. Good luck, right? You could do that. You could craft the, the deepest understanding you have of God, and it wouldn't be more than a thumbnail or toenail sketch of who he is. God is bigger than our view of him. Right? We need a faith that steps into awe and wonder again, that kind of sees God as strange again. We need a denumbing and astronomy. Mature faith knows how to overcome the impulse to master everything and to just marvel again, to stand in awe and wonder and worship God. Because, again, rituals and routines at Christmas, putting up these decorations, singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, reflecting on what it means, that can awaken awe and wonder again. But if we aren't careful, they can't numb us. They can leave us quoting scriptures but missing the Messiah like the wise men in Matthew 2. Their response to Christ's birth was head knowledge that never moved their heart, right? A head knowledge that never moved their feet to go and encounter and follow Christ. Those wise men didn't go on a journey, right? They, they more closely resembled Nazareth, those you'd expect to have faith, those you'd expect to take off running to go find the, this Savior, but those that didn't. 
But again, Jesus, he was like God's divine astronomy. He was fresh revelation, prophecy fulfilled, promises delivered, sacrificial systems transcended, worship elevated, the lowly elevated. Jesus was a divine graced opportunity to see God, to know him through salvation in a deeper way. He was sent to blow the minds of God's people and elevate their perspective of who God was. This denumbing, this astronomy is is part of why Jesus taught in parables. He says in Matthew 13, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, that is why I use these parables. For they, his listeners, look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. And this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their eyes cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes so that their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. And then he goes on and says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. I used to think this verse was pretty harsh. Like it sounds like some people get a raw deal, like they're born with malfunctioning ears and eyes that couldn't be redeemed and they couldn't be saved because of it. But Isaiah, the passage Jesus quotes, points to their dilemma. Their hearts have been hardened. This word hardened in the Hebrew means calloused, dull, or numbed. Jesus was quoting this passage from Isaiah about the religious leaders who were missing him, right in front of him, and they were missing him. The Jews who had seen and heard plenty of scripture, but they were numbed. Parables were Jesus' denumbing, his astronomy. Jesus taught with parables about this upside-down kingdom where the first would be last, the greatest would be a servant, where blessed were the mourning and blessed were the persecuted. It was medicine for a numbed heart, for ears that didn't hear and eyes that didn't see. Let me tell you, the words of Jesus are always the best medicine. If you feel numb, you feel dry, you feel like your worship is lacking, you're lacking awe and wonder, Go to the words of Jesus. That, that's, that's plan A, 1A, right? The words of Jesus speak life. They are life eternally. But I want to give you two more things where if you're like, man, I need medicine so that I can marvel again at the goodness of God, the goodness of Christmas, the goodness of Jesus Christ. I feel like my worship is lacking. I feel like I'm dry or numb. First, always go to the words of Jesus. But secondly, open your eyes. Maybe that sounds too simple, but I think so often we ask for miracles. We ask to see the glory of God, but the reality is that we walk amidst these every day, right? We rarely pause to look up, to pause from our busyness, or or so often the impulse is pull out my phone and scroll through something, but look up, man. The sunset, we don't even, like, notice most of the time. We're orbiting around a star in a galaxy, Princeton's Institute for Advanced Science said the odds against our universe randomly taking a form suitable for life is one out of 10 billion to the 124th power. It's basically a miracle that Earth even exists. You tilt the axis a little bit, move us a couple miles away from the sun or closer, life wouldn't happen. Or look in the mirror. Look at the the, the baby. Look at the person next to you. I was reading a Mark Batterson article this week. He says, according to one estimate, There are 37 sextillion chemical reactions happening in the human body at any given time. You're digesting food, regenerating cells, purifying toxins, catalyzing enzymes, producing hormones, and converting stored energy from fat to blood sugar. Of course, none of this is a testament to you. It's a testament to the God who created you. But when was the last time you thanked God for any of these microscopic miracles? 
Again, you're feeling a lack of awe and wonder. Yeah, turn to the words of Jesus again. Open your eyes. Look in the mirror. Look to the sky. Look under a microscope. But third, and what I want to close with is pick up your pursuit. You know, familiarity and numbness with God is never a result of knowing too much. It's a result of a lack of pursuit. It's not from uh, knowing too much. It's from pursuing too little. We serve a boxed-in God, and we try to put God in boxes that we can understand. It robs us of our awe and our wonder and our worship. For some of us, we need to, to echo the cry of Moses in Exodus, God, show me your glory. And don't let it be some passive prayer, but then pursue him through his word and in prayer, pursue his presence. And you will end up like David in, in Psalm 139.6 where he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Again, often our numbness with God, if we're there, it's not because of a, we just got too much knowledge. It's because of a lack of pursuit. God is inexhaustible, eternal, infinite. I would tell anybody that thinks that they have all the knowledge and wisdom they need of God that they're actually a fool, right? You're never going to fully understand God. But many of us are numb toward God because we pursue too little. We may be over-familiar with Christmas, some of the traditions, the things we do at church, the, the boxes we check, but we aren't over-familiar with Scripture. So often it's a false familiarity. What do I mean is there was a survey a few years ago where it was, it was maybe like three years ago, but it was church Christians, Christians that are going to church, and it asked these thousands of them, hey, how does God speak to you? Number one, their pastor, like the one that was preaching to them. I can appreciate that. People actually listen to sermons. I like that, right? But where do you think the Bible fell in the top ten? Number seven. Seven. These same Christians surveyed admit that God's Bible was his inspired word. Right? God wrote them personally. They believed this, and yet they didn't read it. And the stat I've said again and again is 80% of church-going Christians in America don't open their Bible outside of service. So many of us are copy-and-paste Christians, where there's a, a, a verse we saw over here, something we heard in a sermon clip over here, maybe something we read in a book over here, and then we paste it all together, and we form this faith. We're like, spiritually, your spirit animal is a parrot, right? You're just echoing different Quotes and phrases, and, and I've said it before, it's, it's great that we, we know all these things. But too often we're people that read Bible verses, but we never read our Bibles. And when you, you know verses, but you don't know the context. You know verses, but you don't know the content of Scripture that speaks to that verse. You can be misled so easy again and again. Herod was misled by his own wise men because he trusted in secondhand information. The other wise men, the ones that pursued Jesus, you know, they traveled an estimated 1,000 miles. This was before private jets, helicopters, cars, right? They traveled 1,000 miles. That explains why they weren't there when Jesus was a baby. They showed up when he was like two. That's what many historians believe. It took time to get there. They traveled 1,000 miles in pursuit. So the question 